0: I think yeah, it's important to kind of engage with stakeholders or the people that are actually going to use the research and try and communicate that to them.
1: Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Ardemic podcast speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more that understand, the more we connect the dots and the more we will push our understanding of the world forward. Today on the podcast we speak to Dr Stuart McCurlay-Naylor, a senior lecturer in sport and exercise biomechanics at the University of Suffolk in the UK and the current vice president of the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports. Could you give us a, an overview of your of your research what you're currently working
0: on? Yeah sure so as you said I'm a sports biomechanist which means I study the mechanics of the human body, i.e., how the body moves, so muscles, bones, joints, etc. Lots of my research is on sporting technique, particularly in racket and bat sports, so things like cricket, badminton. Um, I've done a bit of things around how acceleration or force is transmitted through the body after an impact, and then a bit of more strength and conditioning related work. Most recent work was around um, factors affecting the relationship between sprint and jump momentum, which are kind of two different things that are commonly measured within team sports.
1: So for someone outside of sports sciences uh, who doesn't know much about the topic, what is sprint momentum? What, What does that mean?
0: Momentum, kind of if we forget sprinting for a moment, momentum is the amount of motion, so the quantity of motion something has. So in a straight line, linear momentum is your body mass, multiplied by its velocity so it's affected by two things kind of how heavy you are and how fast you're going Um, so if all else is equal the faster you are the more momentum you've got or the heavier you are the more momentum you've got which is why kind of it's harder to decelerate and slow down something that's moving very fast or it's harder to move it's harder to slow down and decelerate something that's very heavy
1: so why is it important Uh, what kind of impact does this kind of research have
0: So I think in terms of sprint momentum and kind of the background to the study, maybe, I think the more momentum you've got, the more pronounced an effect would be on something or someone else in a collision. So when we apply that to collision sports, such as American football, Australian rules football, like the codes Mm -hmm. of rugby, you can see how kind of the outcome of a collision could be important. And so people are starting this kind of a body of research suggesting that maybe rather than just how fast you can run, the combination of sprint speed and your body mass may actually be more important, either in kind of getting a favourable outcome from a collision or from just kind of being harder to decelerate. If you think a lot of those sports, the action is either trying to tackle somebody or just trying to slow down somebody running with the ball. And the more momentum you've got, then the harder it is to do that and kind of the more I guess the greater chance of success in theory. It might not always be practical for coaches or practitioners to perform regular assessments of sprint momentum and get accurate and reliable measures, either because it's kind of difficult to reliably measure sprint speed without kind of specialist equipment, Hmm. or just because you might not want the athletes to be doing maximal effort sprints multiple times a week or at whatever time it is that you want the measure. So I think there was a few studies have come out and kind of one in particular that started to suggest maybe you can, instead of measuring it, can you take some more simple measurements that you're maybe already taking anyway and predict somebody's sprint momentum from that Mm. instead of actually having to measure it. So that's kind of the background to like why you might want to predict sprint momentum. Um, And that's kind of where Maybe I got involved. Just kind of something I read sparked my interest. And I thought, all right, let's kind of dig into this a bit deeper and try and figure out, almost from a geeky kind of maths perspective, what's actually going on here when people are trying to predict one thing from another. Is it actually doing what they think it's doing?
1: Could you, for example, calculate which players are more likely or are more susceptible to a fatal collision or a, or a collision that will have a worse impact on their, on their health?
0: So in terms of health, well, I think there's a lot of assumptions. I think as of all research, generally, it's kind of what are the assumptions we're basing this on? And as long as that's open and transparent, people can then almost evaluate those assumptions. And you say, well, if I agree with those assumptions, yeah, your research makes sense. Kind of yep. if I disagree with those assumptions, then although you've done the study right, it's kind of there's a big hole in it because this assumption is wrong. And I think there's a few things there, I guess if we're looking at it from a health perspective, kind of one of the big assumptions is kind of if you take a bigger hit, is that worse for your health? And, you, you know, you're kind of assuming that somebody who gets hit by a player with more momentum, that might have a bigger effect or a negative effect. And I think that's kind of, again, not necessarily my specialist area, at least from the health perspective, but I think that's maybe a reasonable thing that you could debate. Yeah. I think the other aspect there is around, um, you know, the kind of, what's important and like, is it, um, is it sprint momentum? That's important kind of what's the out, what is it that affects the outcome? And I think if all else is equal, then yes, but, you know, obviously there are other things around technique and you'd maybe be better off getting hit with more momentum in one part of your body than less momentum in a different part of your body. Or mm. if you're kind of doing the tackling, yes, you want to take more momentum into it, but actually is it better to have more momentum or to just kind of get the te- get the technique right and hit them in the right part of the body and hmm. with the right part of your body, etc.? So I think there's a load of things kind of that we'd need to kind of assume, but if everything else is the same, so if you're tackling or hitting with kind of the same technique, the same part of your body on the same part of their body, then I think at that point, that's when kind of sprint momentum starts to become important. And that's when, I guess, people are starting to measure it and go, well, can we predict this? Even just if we think it might be important, we kind of need to measure it before we can know whether it is important or not. Or if we want to change it in some athletes, we need to be able to measure it so that we can then decide whether or not it is having a positive or a negative effect.
1: And I guess that in that way, you know, it can kind of help optimize the efficiency of movements trying to understand it from a a layman's perspective no definitely I think
0: again it kind of comes back to like what with any training intervention what are you trying to achieve and it's I guess yeah the bit where I got interested really was saying well is this thing that you're saying people should improve should we design training programs around that or are there some kind of flaws in some assumptions I think for a bit more background the main thing that was proposed to predict it was vertical jump momentum so there was some research that showed if you measure a vertical jump which many people do kind of regularly so in sports science people often use a jump as an almost like a readiness to train so they'll take athletes will come in in the morning they'll take some simple jump tests and from that they can almost get kind of an indication of any fatigue from the day before any kind of readiness to train so that you can then, from those metrics, go, well, okay, let's hold it back a bit and give them a bit of an easier day today, or yes, they have recovered quite well, etc. and um, So it's things that people are measuring anyway. And there was a suggestion that if you measure takeoff momentum, so as you leave the ground in a jump, how much vertical momentum do you have? Actually, the research showed that that correlated with sprint momentum in rugby players, so, saying actually, we don't need to test sprint momentum, we can just test jump momentum, and then using this equation, we can predict what their sprint momentum would have been. And I think that's where I then got really interested because, kind of, it's on that borderline of like it's sports science and sports biomechanics, but it's also starting to become more of a kind of mathematical kind of problem of just, well, what does this equation do? How do you predict one thing from another? And that kind of sparked like the geeky side of me while still being applied to sport. And I think, as I said earlier, if because momentum is one thing times by another, you've almost got two different things contributing here. And I'm like, well, is it the jump or is it their body mass? Which thing is it that's causing this prediction? And I always like to think of things as like extremes because it helps me to explain it and sometimes kind of helps students to understand it. But with this, I'd say, if you think of two things that are completely unrelated, so say shoe size and I don't know, your favourite number, kind of shoe size and your favourite number probably aren't correlated with each other and you can't predict one from the other. But then if you times them both by your body mass, suddenly, oh, they are kind of related with each other now. So you know, if you take take your shoe size, you've got 20 people, take their shoe size and times it by their body mass, you've now times it by a big number. If you times their favourite number by the same body mass, that's also a big number, suddenly it's like, oh, now these two unrelated things actually are related. And that's kind of, to bring that back to the sprint momentum, that's where I kind of said, you've got jump height and sprint speed, basically. We They might be related or they might not be related. We don't know. But then you've timed them both by body mass to get momentum. And so you're kind of doing what I just said with kind of shoe size Mm. and favorite number where it's not quite as extreme an example. And it's not a case of you're definitely wrong like that. You can't like that doesn't make sense. It was more an unknown. So it's just saying, yes, momentum and momentum can predict each other. But is it due to the jump or is it due to the body mass?
1: How was it kind of following that hypothesis, that that hunch a little bit, and trying to understand the correlation between those two, two, uh, two aspects? And...
0: Yeah, so I think in terms of the process, kind of, I think the first step was basically if I like simulate these results, but it's when they say um, in their pa- kind of a different paper on Aussie rules footballers said, um, our average sprint speed was this, and the variation of it was this. Our average jump height and the variation was this. And then kind of the correlation between the two was whatever. You can kind of recreate those numbers and get your own kind of sample of numbers that get the same results. But then say, well, in this study, they didn't calculate momentum. But if I times kind of the mass and the other things together, what do I get? And just going do i recreate the same results that have been seen in studies that actually measured people properly and i think once they did match you can then say okay now it seems like i can be a bit more confident to change some of these numbers and see what happens because at least at least i know when the numbers are the same the results are the same so you can kind of hope as long as you don't go too kind of bold and start completely changing things you might be able to look at what effects small changes in one thing have on small changes in the others, um, and then yeah, it was just a case of, as with most science, kind of keep everything the same, change one thing at a time, and just say what happens. And generally, it was kind of just plotting some graphs of rather than change some things, what if we try a hundred different variations of this number? Does like what happens as it gets higher? What happens as it gets lower? Does that match what we predicted? Um, So that was kind of, I guess, the approach taken.
1: The Audemic podcast is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers that allows them to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. If I had more knowledge in the area, what question should I ask you?
0: I love that question. That's a a really good question, kind of from your perspective, and then a really hard question for me. Um, I think... I don't know if this necessarily covers that, but I think something else that I find really interesting in this is the idea of measuring something in a group of people and then trying to make recommendations for one person. So if you're dealing with one rugby player or one American footballer, kind of, how does this study that measured 20 or 30 people apply to that one individual? And I think that's where maybe, again, a good example is, imagine kind of you're looking at run-up speed in a long jumper or a cricket bowler, kind of a javelin thrower, kind of anything where there's a run-up followed by kind of some other thing. If you measured 20 people, you might end up saying that the people who run up faster jump further or throw the thing further or faster. So you're kind of saying on this group level, the faster you run up, the better you perform. So then when you're dealing with your athlete on Monday, having read the paper over the weekend, you then go, right, we need to run up as fast as we possibly can. However, if instead of 20 people all doing what they naturally have kind of selected to do, if you measured one person and said, let's run up at 20 different speeds and see what happens, you might get different results and you'll probably find that there's kind of an optimum, in inverted commas, like run-up speed, where if they run up too slow, they won't perform as well. But by the time they reach absolute 100% max running speed, they might not be able to control the movement at the end of it, or there might be kind of various timing constraints, and suddenly they don't perform as well. So you're kind of saying, well, actually, on an individual basis, we've got different results to what we got at a group level. And although we can't answer it from a group study. That was something else that sparked my interest around this whole momentum idea was that people might be reading papers, testing a group of players, and therefore saying, oh, jump momentum predicts sprint momentum. So if we design a training program around improving our jump momentum, you're going to do better in a collision. And that's, again, I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm saying we don't know whether that's right or wrong, in that mm. it's a bit like saying sprint speed correlates with kind of how much weight you can squat, which might be true between people. But does that mean if I double my squat, kind of one rep max, mm. I'm then going to sprint faster? Or actually, will I then be too heavy? Will it be kind of, how do these things play out? Mm. And yeah, kind of one of the, not necessarily conclusions from our paper, but one of the recommendations was actually, even if you can predict sprint momentum from jump momentum, that doesn't mean you can predict changes in one from changes in the other within an athlete, Mm. you'd need, you'd need kind of special or kind of additional studies to figure out whether what happens if we do train to improve one of them. Does the other one improve or does it just stay the same and you've just got better at jumping, for example?
1: Is the correlation clearer when you get to like elite levels, when you look at the top 50, 100-meter sprinters in the world? If one can squat more than the other, will that give them the edge on the field?
0: Yeah, good question. I think so. The first kind of disclaimer is... I don't know. Or the disclaimer that kind of, you know, it's not something I've looked into in great detail. But where I can probably answer it is, and again, I like to think in, in analogies or kind of extremes. But for me, some variables or some things you can measure are almost kind of like your ticket ticket to the raffle or, you know, like your ticket, your entry ticket, where if you don't have that thing, you're not going to get in. And then other things kind of distinguish the winners and losers or medalists and non-medalists once you're actually in. Mm. I think some things, it might be a case of, yeah, if you can't squat a certain amount of weight, you're probably not going to be an elite level sprinter. Like, I don't know whether that's true, but I'd say it might be kind of, I guess your question is, yeah, is it just elite people can sprint, can lift more weight than recreational people? However, they're all similar to each other or amongst that elite cohort, it's not that Usain Bolt can squat more than whoever came second, kind of that type of relationship. Mm. Or is it actually, yeah, that's the one thing that determines it. And I'd say, yeah, it's probably more, uh, They're gonna there's going to be a baseline level of strength required. But even a lot of the things we do as biomechanics or in kind of skill acquisition is around different constraints. So you're, the environment, the task that you're doing and things to do with the individual themselves, all interact to determine their movement and the solution that they choose. So if you're twice as strong as me, you might settle on a different running technique than I do because of the different things that are available for you and the different way that you can use that muscle strength. So it might be that kind of, yeah, it's not necessarily that strength differentiates between different abilities, but it might be that almost within a race and, at least anecdotally, this might be the case. You can see some sprinters that seem to have a very different physique to other sprinters, and it might be that they run in different ways and therefore kind of that strength might be contributing to what causes them to run in that way or what determines the way that person should run. But again, I'm kind of speculating here and talking about kind of things that i know to generally apply um, but not necessarily giving concrete answers in relation to sprinting and squatting because i haven't looked into it too much
1: so let's say if you had if you had 10 million pounds to spend on one research area would you, would you spend it on that area or is, have you got another dream
0: wow um are you offering me 10 million <laughs> <laughs> not quite yet yeah. Maybe one day so i think so my phd actually was on kind of computer simulation of sporting movements. And we wrote a review paper recently that kind of critiqued previous studies and all of the different methods people had used to simulate sporting movements and almost optimise it and say, what happens to their performance if we change various things? What's the best way that person can move? And we kind of critiqued that and came up with quite a few even limitations with it or recommendations for possible future development. And something I'd really like to do is almost just to, if I had, if money wasn't an issue and I could just spend a few years working on something we almost go back to basics and just investigate individual things kind of almost one at a time in really simple models of, you know, one part of a body or a really simple movement and just say, what happens? Can we make this model more accurate by changing this? can we make it more accurate by changing this kind of how does this thing affect how force is transmitted through the body, etc.? and then bring it all back together at the end to go, now we've got better models of sporting performance than we did have. But again, that's probably nowhere near 10 million. So, um, so I think, yeah, maybe linking back to your last thing, if money, if you had that sort of money, it'd be great to have access to kind of the world's best performers in a range of events, you know, to say, like we've done work with elite athletes in a few sports through links with either national or world governing bodies, but the ability to just kind of have say a portable lab where you can fly out and kind of set up some sort of track meet or go to different training camps and say, yeah, I'm going to test the world's best hundred meter sprinter. I'm going to test the world's best, whatever. Like, yeah, that would be brilliant. Again, don't know whether we're still hitting anywhere near that 10 million, but they're kind of some of the things that, even if not from a research perspective, I'd love to be able to do.
1: Last couple of questions. So how how do you manage your time as a researcher? <laughs> um, I was going to say,
0: I don't. Um, no, I think that's a... That's uh, a really common but, answer. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's a good question. I think, yeah, it's something... Like, I wish I had a concrete answer, but it's something we're kind of continuously working on. I think everyone is. Uh, but for me, something I'm really keen on is trying to make one kind of piece of work serve as many purposes as possible. If you can make something work in multiple different ways, then I think that's going to be a good way of doing it. Kind of on along that line of kind of working smarter um, rather than harder. But I think I often try and end up doing both, which might not be the best way around. But I think something else I'm really keen on is what I'd call evergreen content. So trying to do things that will still be relevant 10 years from now and not just kind of you know producing something that by the time I've done it, it can never be used again, or doing something that's kind of the latest trend, and then in a year's time, no one's ever going to read the research again. And it's kind of trying to, I think, yeah, do things where in 10, 20 years' time, they'll hopefully still be useful resources or still be relevant. Um, and even, I guess, things in that way that I intend to kind of compound on top of each other. So, you know, if you do one thing and then the next week you do something else, but it builds onto the first one or links back to the first one in some way by the time you've done that 10 times they're kind of all benefiting each other and you've then got this sort of ecosystem of resources or bits of work and you kind of that one bit of work that you spent some time on back when you the first bit is still kind of working for you and yeah i think all that sort of thing it comes back to again just automating anything that you can as well So i think Another kind of principle, I guess, that I try to work to is say it would take a day to do something manually. If I can spend a week and automate it, then it means next time I've got to do it, that day's work will only take kind of 10 minutes. And it's just, again, it's worth spending more time the first time so that the second, third, fourth and fifth time it's quick and easy. But yeah, I wouldn't say I've got the answers, but they're kind of some of the things I'm thinking about in terms of trying to allocate resources and say, how should I spend my time?
1: Where can our listeners
0: find you online? I'm quite active on social media. Um, probably, yeah, trying to be maybe a more modern academic. But I think yeah, it's important to kind of engage with kind of stakeholders or the people that are actually going to use the research and try and communicate that to them. But I think the easiest and best way um, is probably to find me on Twitter, which is biomech stew So B-I-O-M-E-C-H, so biomech from biomechanics, and then S-T-U, um, stew. And yes, yeah, so if you want to know, anyone wants to know more about sports biomechanics, I've got a YouTube channel as well um, with lectures, presentations and tutorials on it from biomechanics and research methods. Thank you very
1: much, Stuart, for your time today. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me.
1: To find out more about Stuart's work, find him on Twitter at biomex2, and to listen to his research in full, sign up to Audemic at audemic.co, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.